Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, we're your Marketers in Motion podcast hosts. I'm Josh Genoviak. And I'm Megan Pear. E-commerce is a daunting topic for marketers everywhere. We'll work through 10 questions your e-commerce business can use to align and focus your organization for success. These include consumers and their experiences, your brand, products and services, technology, data privacy, innovation, markets served, and what's around the corner for all of us. Woo! Hefty topic. I'm excited to talk about it. Did you get all that? I did. I did. And we have joining us today uh, one of our luncheon speakers, uh, John Tyner. He is the vice president, direct to consumer of Costa Del Mar. And I'm going to read his little bio here. Very impressive work. Uh, he spent most of his career in the apparel and footwear industry, starting at our very own Wolverine Worldwide here in West Michigan. And now at, and I swear I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up every time. Essilor Luxotica. Perfect. Oh, I got Nailed it right it. this time. Nice. Yes, and Costa Del Mar. So that's where he's at currently. Um, he has worked to help large global brands expand their traditional business models through the ascent of the communication age. John is passionate about brands and consumers, and has a love for helping businesses think through how to best connect consumers to great products and services to improve lives and the world. I just love that. We got to give a, a shout out to our sponsors. Yeah. Very excited to actually be recording at River City Studios here in mm-hmm. Grand Rapids today, our new podcast sponsor. And uh, we're going to talk a little more about them a little bit later in the podcast. Also, a shout out to our event sponsor, CQL, our annual gold sponsors, MI Biz and Vizcom Media, silver sponsors, PageWorks, Bird and Bird Studio and Red 66 Marketing, and our bronze sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning. Yes. Huge thank you to all of our sponsors. So welcome, John. Welcome back to the Marketers in Motion podcast. Shoot, since say welcome back. Welcome, I think we, John. I <laughs> think we, we should state welcome back because John is doing this the second time around, and that's why I'm excited to be at River City because I messed up the recording the okay. first time. Okay, well, we'll be fully transparent on the AMA West Michigan podcast. <laughs> we are human. We sometimes make mistakes. Technology doesn't love us, and John was so gracious uh, to come back uh, a second time, but I think it's just because you love West Michigan, right? I do love West Michigan, so thanks for uh, asking me to come back again. It's my pleasure. Yes, and I feel like John uh, John loves snow. He was telling us about this last time, and I feel like he brought the snow, so thanks. Hey, I love it. <laughs> I don't think it snowed in between the time he was here the first time and this time, so it's really following you. It is you. It is you. I'll try and come back more often. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, well, before we kind of dive into talking about e-commerce, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do, where you're at today, and kind of, you know, all the things that make you tick. 
Yeah, so uh, thanks again for having me, and uh, thanks to uh, the AMA and the sponsors for uh, for inviting me in and giving me a chance to share what uh, what's going on at Costa and a little bit of e- insights into e-commerce. Um, yeah, as you guys uh, correctly stated, um, I'm working uh, at Costa Del Mar, uh, which is a 35-year-old sunglass brand. It's located in uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. Not a bad place to no. hang out. No and uh, it's a it's a super cool company um, started by some uh, really was some uh, physicians who were found themselves in the Caribbean and and they loved uh, to go fishing. Uh, Florida's the sport uh, fishing capital of the world, uh, and they were really having a struggle uh, to uh, fish effectively to see the to see the fish. Mm. And um, so they came back and uh, created some sunglasses and partnered with a businessman uh, who was in Daytona at the time, and uh, the Costa brand was invented. So uh, the DNA of the brand was really about performance, and it was associated really closely, though, uh, with the notion of sustainability, Mm -hmm. which was not really something that was uh, sort of first and foremost for a lot of brands 35 years ago. Uh, because these guys were fishermen at heart, uh, they were really concerned with water and water quality because it actually directly affected their ability to enjoy the sport they love so much. Uh, so uh, water, water conservation, water quality became uh, really a part of the Costa brand from uh, the first days. And the way that manifests itself today uh, is in a variety of programs. A lot of them are centered around plastic and plastic usages and how those things are affecting uh, water quality today on a global basis. So um, there's a lot to check out. You can go to the website and see the cool programs that Costa is investing in. It's not something recent that they've done. They haven't jumped on the bandwagon of cause marketing. This is something that's just woven into the DNA of the brand. And one of the reasons why I joined the business Mm -hmm. uh, three years ago. So, um, yeah, we have a thriving uh, e-commerce business uh, and a really strong brand with a great consumer franchise um, and uh, super cool products. So, uh, yeah, I feel very privileged to work for the company. That's great. I, I said this before, but I just love your brand story. I think, number one, you tell it so well. Um, but I love that the cause marketing wasn't just something we attached to because that's like a hot thing to do right now. This is truly part of your brand DNA. Yeah. And I think it's really important to understand today, uh, for millennials and certainly for Gen Z's, um, these guys are, are really sensitive to greenwashing and, uh, you know, it's the, you know, when's the best time to start doing things that are good for the environment? Well, Mm -hmm. today. And just be totally transparent and honest about the things your business is doing, even if they're really super early, small steps, it doesn't matter. Take a step mm-hmm. and, um, and then just, you know, start talking about it and, and watch and see what happens. And you'll wake up 35 years later and be better than Costa, you know, that's just, that's just how it is. But, um, you know, consumers are really sensitive to, uh, the legitimacy of the programs that you're doing. So it's really important to just speak about them in a real honest and plain way. Um, because when you do, uh, you know, then consumers feel really comfortable um, mm-hmm. attaching to the brands. Well, and what I like about what you guys have going on, and you can see all the causes that they support on their website, which is awesome, is you really do take that Simon Sinek and start out with the why, and people know what you are about, what the organization is about. And as you said, uh, I'd like to shop and support companies that are doing great things and sustainable and being um, responsible. So, uh, kudos to you for doing mm-hmm. that and, and not making us dig for that. Why? Like you guys are out there doing and getting your hands dirty, which is awesome. 
Yeah, it's a, I think that's another uh, important aspect, again, really thinking about millennials and Gen Z. Uh, you know, for them, and I think for consumers generally, there's a pretty real level of fatigue um, at a product level, uh, meaning they don't need to hear about another technology associated to a product. Um, I think fundamentally, they think it should already be a part of it. And uh, they're not necessarily going to dive too deep on those things. So there's not a lot of emotional connection that occurs with those. It tends to be much more rational. So the way we want to reach consumers, certainly at Costa, is on an emotional level, typically first. And that's really where a lot of our acquisition activity is occurring today. We're talking about the things that we're doing uh, from a conservation perspective, from a sustainability perspective first. That's how we meet first. Uh, so if it's a Surfrider Foundation a beach cleanup, um, or we're talking about you know the research that we're funding uh, around sharks and uh, how they're in, uh, impacting uh, our our uh, uh, the the balance of the oceans. Um, we tend to connect to people on an emotional level on things that are important to us before we ever talk about our products. Mm-hmm. And so there's an emotional connection where we find something in common with each other, and then we say, "Well, we happen to have these things as well." And and suddenly the relationship becomes completely different. And so, a trust. I mean, you have a trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, we do happen to have, there's only two companies in the world that manufacture product at the level that we do. So we have a great product story to tell, um, but it's really not what we lead with uh, because it's, it's just not the right way, in our opinion, to connect with consumers. Again, especially with millennials and Gen Zs. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a kind of a great segue into, uh, you know, your, your presentation that you gave to us. You talked about kind of what's next in e-commerce, these 10 key questions um, that we need to know. But the first one, and if we can maybe start here and then and build on it, you talk about you have to start with the consumer, which is kind of exactly what you guys are doing. You're connecting with the consumer because that's what they care about. So maybe we can start there, why that's important, and then kind of go through those 10 questions. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it just comes down to relevancy. And, um, I, you know, I, I love to go into public spaces and just sort of observe what's occurring. Um, and, and what I see, and you probably do too, is, uh, you know, humans are intensely social. Mm-hmm. So despite the availability of technology, which, you know, can kind of keep us separate from each other, doesn't matter. We love to be around and with each other. So, you know, retail stores and malls and gathering places are going to be, they've been around for thousands of years and it'll be thousands more uh, because people fundamentally want to be around each other. So um, it's great to see them interacting with each other and see the things that are important to them when they're doing that. And you can see how they've integrated technology into their lives and they use it immediately to be more social. Mm-hmm. So um, as a brand, Um, We're sensitive to the behavioral changes and we want to meet consumers where they are. And, um, you know, if you, again, if you're observing their behavior, they're spending a lot of time in social media, uh, media communicating with each other and sharing their experiences. Uh, And so that's where we want to meet them. And, uh, you know, if they want to connect with us and go deeper, they can come to our website and spend time with us. But fundamentally, they don't really need to do something like that. I think it's a pretty critical thing. thing to not miss uh, is meet people where they are and mm-hmm. don't force them to uh, come someplace else to, to learn something unless there's some really great reward when they get there. Mm-hmm. So for us, as we structure our relationship around consumers, we have target consumers and certain behaviors that we're, uh, we're looking for. Um, we, we tend to want to give them what they need where they're at already 
and then when they're ready, they'll take the step. Uh, and they'll come and they'll learn more from us. And typically that's engaging deeper in some of our project work and fundamentally, hope, hopefully, uh, they're they're going to get curious about our products. Let's talk a little bit about the the evolution of e-commerce, because I feel in the last two, three, five years, we've leaps and bounds as far as sure. what's going on with Amazon and ordering things and having it on your doorstep in two hours or the same day. And everything is free shipping now and and how to compete. So how do we get to where we are today? Yeah. Um, you know, in the intro, we talked about the ascent of communication technology, and I think that's really what's driving all of this. Um, it's kind of cool to be a part of this sort of sweeping kind of change. Uh, and, and, you know, we adopted fairly quickly uh, the idea that we didn't have to go out and, and uh, fight our way through a, a busy mall in order to, you know, buy a pair of tennis shoes or whatever. Um, and so, um, I think we've been watching for, I have in my career for more than 20 years, uh, how the technology has started to shape uh, the shopping experience in a way that just makes life easier for consumers. It's fascinating. We can curate our own products today, our own product selections, our own brands. And this is something that, you know, like in the history of the United States, like Sears did for us. Oh, yeah. Old catalogs. A, a century yeah. ago, and, and it was a catalog, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that was a thing. And what did they do? I mean, they did the research, they brought the products, and they delivered it to your doorstep. And then they, you know, you sent your money away, and they delivered right. it to your doorstep. So it's exactly the same behavior, only now the, the power in this moment has shifted from Sears to the consumer. So what we've seen lately, though, is that, um, you know, Consumers are walking around. We are all walking around with supercomputers in our pockets. And um, that's really what our phones are today. Um, it's funny that we refer to them as phones because I, I'm willing to bet that less than 20% of the time we actually use them as phones. Um, it, they're fundamentally supercomputers. And uh, it, they're awesome, of course, um, because they allow us to do so many things we couldn't do before. Um, but I think that that's taken what was already uh, sort of a growing wave of momentum, um, and it's just absolutely magnified it by a hundred times. Yeah. So we're really in a position today, at any place, at any time, anywhere, to you know answer many questions. Um, and in the case of Amazon, uh, I think they have been absolutely the pioneers in the development of e-commerce technology by the applications that they started building two decades ago and what a user experience should be like and then what a service experience should be like. And they've really been masters about teaching, frankly, all of us how to do this. Uh, so I think they deserve a lot of credit from that perspective for having defined uh, what e-commerce really should be. In the same way that Google defined what search should be, Amazon has defined what shopping should be. Well, and I think it's just the convenience. It's yeah. just so easy to get online, especially dog food. I mean, Chewy is a big thing in, in dog food. You go and pick up this big 40, 50 pound bag, or I can just go online and have it sent to my doorstep. I think it's the convenience and the kind of personalization as well as the predictive uh, oh, aspect. Yeah. I mean, I have bought so many products off of Amazon that I didn't know I needed. You might like because, this yeah, because exactly. you did this. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. So <laughs> um, in e-commerce, can you talk a little bit how about how important those things are, like personalization, um, using the data that you have on your consumers? Yeah, all su that. super important topic. And we're really just at the forefront of this. Um, 
Yeah. So, uh, look, I think we have watched an evolution over the last uh, couple of hundred years of how, you know, advertising has uh, matured. And uh, we're watching another revolution occur in front of us today. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine, um, as an example, watching a sporting event, and uh, you might see an advertisement uh, while you're consuming that content. Maybe you're in the ballpark, or maybe you're on tel- you're watching it on your television, or maybe you're listening to it on a radio. Remember mm-hmm. those things? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, what we find in those moments are uh, advertising that is um, in place for uh, the entire potential audience that's listening. And the reality is, is that may only be relevant to a small percentage of the folks in, in that given moment. And, you know, we know that certain people are at different points in a purchase cycle. They may be in the consideration set. Um, they may be actually considering a, a purchase at that time, and therefore they're shopping. Uh, they may have strong purchase intent, and so they're going to buy. Um, but what's fundamentally changed today is, and again, we're just at the beginning of it, when organizations like uh, marketplaces, so Google, Walmart, Amazon, et cetera, can watch your behavior, uh, they have simple things like saying, well, you may also like, and suddenly these recommendations, especially if they have a rich history of data on you, are, you know, a hundred times more relevant Mm-hmm. than the advertising that we were consuming on a mass level when we were, you know, consuming a sporting event or whatever, as an example. So while it um, may compel you to make a purchase, um, it probably is doing it for all the right reasons, because fundamentally the product or service they showed you was actually relevant. Uh, and that's the cool thing uh, about this technology we're just at the forefront of it. The data sets that are being generated around this are sort of just barely computable today. Um, so as we begin to, you know, deal with machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence, um, it's great to have a healthy dose of real intelligence that's guiding the way we build these algorithms uh, so that the machines can understand the correct ads to serve to us. And when they do, Um, I I think fundamentally that's a good thing for us uh, because very quickly, uh, not only will the consumer find things that they want, but also uh, the manufacturers or the providers of the products or services will stop targeting people for whom their uh, advertising simply isn't relevant. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous boost forward in efficiency. And, And I think five to 10 years from now, it'll be shocking how much more relevant these things are than they are today. If you can serve me beer and cycling and donut ads over psoriatic arthritic ads and drugs, I I would love you. I mean, I wow, would... Josh, I just learned a whole a whole <laughs> new thing about you in that. Little... Serve me. I'm all for the the custom content, <laughs> and the, the technology should be there to do that. We listen online to a lot of things, Spotify and iTunes and. Harness my data, use it for good. Don't use it mm-hmm. for evil. But I'm, I, I love that. I'm also while we're on the topic of data, I do have to ask, what kind of data and how valuable is the data that you can get from online reviews? Oh, uh, certainly from from my experience, online reviews are fundamental. They're foundational mm-hmm. uh, to building um, a strong and successful e-commerce business. Uh, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about the sensitivity that um, certainly millennials and Gen Zs have in the case of, you know, sustainability and cause marketing. They're equally 
um, uh, suspicious or curious about the quality of the products or services that are being offered. And, and they doubt to a certain extent, um, you know, what the, the brands or the companies say about themselves and their products. And they're looking for validation in the marketplace. You know, they want uh, the crowd uh, to back up and support what they're saying. So, you know, certainly in my experience, um, when we can open up uh, our entire business, uh, which is a bit of vulnerability, uh, to reviews, um, assuming that you're approaching the marketplace with, you know, strong value and, and a great, uh, service, you're going to get the reviews that allow consumers to feel much more comfortable and to boost the trust level so that the conversion rates rise dramatically, um, which is exactly what you're looking for. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Reviews are fundamental and, um, they, uh, they require work, as all of uh, these things do. There are certainly third-party providers that are really excellent at this. But what you find is uh, that the, the information that comes out of them needs to be able to uh, move through your organization. So if a, a, a consumer posts a bad review, your customer service team needs to be monitoring and aware so that they can respond in a timely fashion, take the conversation offline, and communicate directly with that consumer to solve whatever their issue is. So... Um, it's a, it takes integration in systems and in people uh, to make sure that you're taking advantage of the, the reviews. And I believe I've seen research that people have more brand loyalty if they have a problem and they report it and they get a satisfactory response. They will become more loyal to that brand. Mm-hmm. So it's all in the follow-up and how you deal with it. Yeah, it's, it's triple digits uh, in terms of the improved performance when you have reviews and then when you have reviews that are integrated properly from a systematic and uh, organizational perspective, it's that big. So they're, they're absolutely foundational. Oh. Oh. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about technology. The word has, has come up a lot, but you kind of say technology is not the main uh, thing. It's not that important in e-commerce. It's not like the thing that you should focus on. What should we focus on instead? <laughs> and maybe I'm saying that not in the best way, but it's not the everybody thinks e-commerce and technology like go together immediately. Yeah, well, uh, it, of course, we we know that, you know, e-commerce doesn't work particularly well when the power goes out. So mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it is technology, but but. You know, what you're saying is, in my opinion, absolutely correct. Um, you know, the, the focus really needs to be seeing technology as an enabler. Mm-hmm. That's really all of that it is. Um, fundamentally, the consumer is wanting to have a relationship with you know, a brand, whatever that brand may be. And the technology is what's facilitating that. So, um you know, as we watch uh, organizations grow and evolve over time and they say, well, you know, we, we see this train is moving. We want to get on the train. What do we do? Often the very first conversation they have is about technology. And that's fine. But we need to understand that there are two other sort of blades of the propeller that will pull that, that thing mm-hmm. forward. And they're the organization and processes combined with the technology that allow you to create a business that's actually uh, sustainable and scalable. Um, so uh, focus on your consumers and on your brand first, and then on your products and services, uh, and then start bolting up the infrastructure. Uh, and remember that it's a combination of systems, organization, and process that mm-hmm. will, will create the foundation. Yeah. How important is your marketing campaign as far as your overall success? Uh, well, look, marketing campaigns are, uh, are very important. Um, 
you know, because uh, that's where we're really digging in. Um, if we've done our research correctly, you know, we're reaching the consumer at that right moment. Um, so uh, campaigns are very important, um, but they're one of the last things uh, along the way that you actually put together. So in theory, you've done a lot of work ahead of time. Again, finding the right consumers, making sure that your brand is whatever it is that you've decided it would be, uh, and then the correct products and services that align those things. The alignment between your brand and your consumers has got to be legit. Uh, when you put your product in the middle of it, it's got to be right. The example I always use is, yep, okay, you have consumers who you know like European sports cars and your BMW. Okay, fantastic. Well, if they love you that much, why don't you start making dishwashers? You know, BMW mm -hmm. dishwashers. Like, um, what, the ultimate washing machine? Right. <laughs> uh, could be cool. It's not an alignment. It's not an yes. alignment. Yeah, that that's just not what that brand is all about. It doesn't capture the spirit of the brand. So that's what that alignment is about. Um, so really, those are the things that need to be solved. Uh, and uh, you have products that are coming to market then that you hope are going to continue to build the relationship and extend to the consumer that value proposition. Uh, and there's where the brand campaign comes in. How do I reach her and communicate with her in a way that she expects me to be there and she's comfortable with me being there and I show up in a way that, that she expects me to. Um, so that really without thinking about it, she invites me in and we can have a conversation and she's going to make a decision in that moment whether she wants to you know, go further or, or not. So, yeah, I love that because this is still my favorite line. I wrote it down, highlighted it. But um, you say, you know, for us to implement uh, campaigns that are relevant and of value, you have to let your consumer guide you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, she has to be in charge all the time. And, and that, you know, maybe that sounds, I don't know, difficult or, or challenging or whatever. But um, really, uh, meet her where she is. And uh, she's going to tell you very quickly whether or not what you're saying to her resonates or doesn't resonate. And uh, the extent to which you ignore that will determine the success of your campaign. Mm -hmm. Do you have any any tips or any examples of how you can do that? And the reason I ask, there's there's so much. There's so much noise now. So how can we really laser focus in on her and put all the other stuff aside? Yeah, I, I don't think it's really any different than what we were just talking about um, before. Um, you know, you we need to understand, you know, in the moment what the alignment is between our brand and our consumers and how those products and services live in the middle of that. You know, and if we get that legit, if we get that alignment, then really it becomes a bit of a more of a mechanical function to decide, well, how far do we want this campaign to reach? How deeply do we want to spend, you know, from something very small to, uh, you know, the example everyone uses is a Super Bowl ad or something like that. You know, how far do we want to go to get their attention? Um, and I think businesses very quickly look at uh, what their resource constraints are. And if they translate that back down to the creative level, it can help uh, to right size the investments that you're making in these things and determine what the reach will be. Okay. So, and be realistic about what a campaign can and cannot do. If you don't have the alignment, if you don't understand your consumers, if your products and services aren't at the level, your marketing campaign is not going to help. And, and the marketplace is littered with examples of brands mm -hmm. and businesses that have ignored those things and yet put a lot of money into that and wound up still failing. 
I, I don't want to name a lot of brands, but there's <laughs> lots and lots of brands in there in the Dow Jones and in the Fortune 500, and they've, uh, they're have they not what they used to be. Well, on, on that topic, you in lunch, you had two slides of brands back in the day and today, and there were only a couple of them that ended up on both of those sheets. I think Disney was- I think it was only one, wasn't it, Disney? Disney's the only one I yeah. can't Was Disney forward. the only one? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought there was two. Okay. Yeah. So how how does Disney stand the test of time? And when things like Kodak and the film age are gone, how how do you evolve and stay that relevant over the the, te- the test of time? Yeah, I, uh, I I apologize because I think I'm sounding like a broken record, but um, <laughs> the the way that the brands uh, survive is uh, by continuing to um, ask their relevancy to consumers and to to honor the commitment that they made to them. So uh, one of the brands that used to be absolutely dominant in the United States was General Electric and uh, a massive conglomerate, uh, and they have fallen from grace dramatically. Um, They had a huge business-to-business business, business, uh, but then consumers knew them, and they made light bulbs and and fans and refrigerators and everything else, and uh, they are a fraction the size they were in the past. Um, um, In my opinion, they forgot who their consumers were and what the promise was they made to them uh, in terms of product, product innovation, product quality, and over time, it allowed the market to open up for competitors to come in who were focused on those things and took their business away. And these are just the harsh realities of the mm-hmm. marketplace. So the brands that were on the, the first slide that mostly didn't appear on the second slide typically were brands that had strong franchises at the consumer level and just simply fell asleep. They took their eyes off the ball. They focused on the wrong things and they were absolutely um, passed, um, by other companies who, um, really recognized, you know, what they needed to do to to serve consumers effectively today. That's fascinating. Disney. It's one of my favorite brands and they hit it out of the park every time. Disney's absolutely phenomenal. If you've been to their parks, uh, I've never been. Oh my God. (laughs) You, You need to go. And, and especially as a marketer, um, to understand, you know, we talk in terms of marketing about touch points. And uh, can you imagine that you have square miles of touch points mm-hmm. that are hotels and, and amusements and food and transportation and all the things that are there and you have the most precious people in the world. It's your parents, your children, your grandparents, whatever it is, uh, and they're all there. It's mm-hmm. an infinite number of touch points and Disney manages all of them. Yeah. Uh, they're phenomenal at what they do. Um, They have not forgotten the promise that they made to consumers that they would come to the happiest place on earth. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. I think their like official brand promise word is magic. And it is every single interaction you have in Disney serves up magic. That's a, it's a staggering accomplishment. And they, the phenomenal, phenomenal Isn't it the bracelet? You wear the bracelet and everywhere you go it. Well, that, yeah, that's their newest thing. Yeah, so they've innovated with technology and, and mm-hmm. using data that you have there. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we could spend a whole podcast on Disney alone. Certainly could. That's an amazing <laughs> brand, an amazing yes. business. Yeah, they just a phenomenal job. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you, at the luncheon, you kind of showed us this cool pyramid diagram and how it's important to, to kind of have um, what you called a product distribution strategy in place. Can you explain that a little bit and, and what it is and why it's important? 
Sure. Uh, so a product channel distribution strategy is uh, a thoughtful way for a brand to approach the market. And, um, you know, there are brands in the marketplace today like Lululemon, uh, which are, you know, sort of shining examples of this. Lululemon has made the decision that they will fundamentally control their brand, um, I'll say, quote unquote, at retail. And that means that really the only place you're going to find Lululemon is either uh, in a Lululemon store or at their website. So there are no other places or points of distribution. So in a product channel distribution strategy, Lululemon is right up at the top, meaning the first point of distribution at the top of the pyramid is within the brand itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you move down in the pyramid, you get more and more distribution points. So the pyramid gets larger at the base. Um, and typically, you know, it goes from the brand itself to sort of dealers or independent uh, uh, stores and dealers down into um, big box distribution or some of the large organizations. And then finally, the biggest one would be out in the marketplaces, Amazon, Walmart, uh, eBay, Google, Google Express. Um, so brands, in my opinion today, need to be extremely thoughtful about how they distribute their products uh, because... Um, the value that consumers ascribe to a brand can easily be swayed by the way they see the brand in the marketplace. So <clears throat> one of the most recent examples of this is uh, Nike mm-hmm. uh, and Ikea right on the heels of Nike, uh, who have um, intentionally removed all of their uh, distribution uh, from the marketplaces, specifically Amazon. They have said, we will not uh, participate in those marketplaces. Now, we all understand at a consumer level that this is half of the online searches for, for purchases are done on Amazon. It's the biggest contributor to SEO today. It's so important. Why would a brand choose not to participate in the biggest marketplace? Because it's undermining the value of the brand because the products are showing up there well below their retail price. And so the consumer has been taught by the marketplace to undervalue the brand because they're finding new products far less than uh, priced below than, than where the brand says they belong. So Nike is taking control and moving the products back up out of the bottom level of the pyramid, back up into the big box distribution, back up into the dealers, back up into their own stores and in their own website. And you'll also find that they have changed the mix of the products that distribute down through the pyramid. So the very top of the pyramid is their most expensive, best product, exclusive, first to market, et cetera. As you move down the pyramid and go into, for instance, the the big boxes, you'll find much lower price product. And Mm -hmm. it's uh, coming later into the marketplace. So the consumer is being trained, aha, if I want to find something and I'm not particularly concerned about the latest and I don't want to overpay, I can go to Dick's Sporting Goods and get my Nike top and go work out. But if I want the cool stuff, if I want the new stuff, if I want the latest innovations, I'm going to go to a Nike store or a very strong independent store or to uh, the Nike website because that's the only place I'm going to find those things. Mm-hmm. So that's a product channel distribution strategy. Um, fundamentally, price is a massive driver. The four P's have not gone away from marketing. We all learned what those are, P for price, et cetera. Um, price is a massive driver of consumer perception of a brand and of a business. And so because of the ascent of the marketplaces, brands, uh, in my opinion, really need to 
think about product channel distribution strategies going forward in order to maintain their viability. If you are a relatively new brand product, can you go straight out of the gate and just stay at the top of the pyramid? Or do you need to be a Nike or a Lululemon that really has that following built in already? It's absolutely the, you know, up to the, you know, the folks who started the business. But the short answer is, of course, yeah, absolutely okay. you can. Um, there just needs to be recognition of the pace and rate of growth. Mm. So um, one of the reasons why businesses will immediately launch themselves onto Amazon and become, you know, part of the, the prime shipping is because they want to take advantage of its breadth. Mm. But they need to understand the overall impact to their margins and they need to understand the behavior that Amazon has exhibited over the last five to 10 years. Although uh, I was recognizing them in a very positive way for their contributions to e-commerce from a technology perspective, from a UX perspective, um, I uh, have different feelings about uh, the way they're behaving in the marketplace today, uh, the way that they are um, you know, copying products that have been developed by other organizations and selling them for less. Um, this kind of behavior ultimately destroys innovation over time. Uh, so for very basic products that are sort of commodities, it's not an issue at all. And that's just a good functioning marketplace. Mm -hmm. But for things that have required innovation and capital investment to develop, um, that sort of behavior really does undermine the value creation that's central to our market. That's why we're seeing brands pull out of, of Amazon or have an extremely controlled relationship with them. Okay. Is there any sight in end as far as how much better, faster, more convenient things are going to get with Amazon and these other online fulfillment? Well, uh, despite the fact that Amazon has never actually made money selling products, um, they really just make their money through Amazon Web Services and some ancillary benefits. Uh, they don't make money selling you toilet paper. In fact, they lose money consistently doing it. Oh, uh, they have leveraged their cash flow to build a nationwide network of uh, warehouses, uh, distribution facilities, and they're literally everywhere now. And the point of that is that you're never more than a day away from delivery of so your, your Amazon product. It's crazy. It's, um, I, think, I think there's a logical limit to what the expectation needs to be. Because fundamentally, if you need something, you know, Meyer is just down the road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can go get that gallon of milk. Uh, <laughs> you don't probably need a drone to bring it to your home. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's romantic to think about a drone showing up with a gallon of milk. Um, but we've had these flights of fancy uh, two decades ago um, as we saw the ascent of the internet to begin with and the prediction that all of the stores would close and we would never leave our homes again. Um, it feels like the, that, that's coming to pass again. So I do think there's a logical limit to the convenience that consumers will expect and demand. Uh, and while they appreciate it, you know, fundamentally, um, I, it's difficult to imagine that same-day delivery is uh, going to be a requirement. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a nice-to-have. I think people are very comfortable getting products within a day or two. Mm -hmm. We have some... Um listener questions. Um, and a lot of these, I'm going to kind of lump them together and then I'll ask you a bigger question. I know it's so complicated. One question, uh, numerous parts. Yes. Uh, so they, they, they mentioned how long should it take uh, users to see the, the CTA button, call to action button? Um, how important is page speed? How many steps should there be in our checkout process? I think the point is here, how important is UX <laughs> um, in e-commerce world? And are there any tips um, that you would offer up uh, for individuals kind of designing that? 
Yeah, I I think you 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 got it, Megan. Uh, this is these are UX questions, and they're one hundred percent valid. Um, yeah, I think we're very fortunate uh, in the technology that we use with uh, with a rich analytic implementation, which I strongly recommend for everyone who's uh, you know using e-commerce. You need that rich implementation, and you need to be in the data literally every day. Um, you're watching, you're watching the consumer behavior. Uh, and it's, um, it's absolutely critical to figure out, you know, what it is that they like is, should the button be blue or should the button be green Mm -hmm. and, and be very careful not to make that decision for the consumer. Let the data, uh, tell you, set up the AB tests and watch what happens. Uh, the work that it takes to build AB testing processes pay for themselves almost overnight. Um, in terms of basic things like page load speed and things, um, those are very important. I think we're, we're fortunate uh, because we're really migrating out of an age of custom-built applications uh, supporting e-commerce to much more platform-based. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've had on the um, sort of at the enterprise level the, the notion of SaaS or software as a service. And we're really migrating into the age of platform as a service. And that's really specifically in this case for for e-commerce. And and when we move to those things, um, sort of out of the box, we're going to get the kind of performance um, that should make consumers happy. Um, now, it's it's you know it's certainly still necessary to do our due diligence um, as we're developing and deploying um, these uh, applications. Um, but I think we're fundamentally in a better position to, to serve consumers today than we were even five years ago with the maturity of the platforms that are available. So absolutely critical. Speed is critical. Um, but we're getting to the point where just like computers used to be slow 20 years ago and then suddenly reached a point where they were fast enough and we stopped complaining about them, it's happening with e-commerce platforms. They're getting fast enough to kind of stop complaining about them. So, mm-hmm. but that's happening because there's a lot of smart people behind the scenes doing great work. So don't stop doing the great work. Speak in my language. Be in the data every day. Data. Love it. High five. Data. Love it. Love it. Love it. I'm surprised you haven't brought up the data. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> was, I think this is a natural. That's going to be my natural segue. Right into there, uh-huh. Megan. All right, data privacy. It's a tough world out right there right now with all the regulations coming out, lots of new laws. How important is this? Yeah. Uh, well, we, you know, we make a promise. Um, and, you know, I, I love to use the analogy of relationships. Um, brands have relationships with consumers and, and uh, that relationship extends to data privacy. So, you know, if you want to have a great relationship with a friend, you know, how, how do you treat the information mm-hmm. you have about that friend? Well, you treat it with care. It's entirely the same. Uh, the, the issue is, is that, that, you know, if we're running significant businesses, we may have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of friends. Mm-hmm. And, and so these become uh, systems discussions, you know, sort of rather than personal discretion conversations, but the same rules apply. Um, so, uh, you know, we just had um, uh, the California Data Protection uh, yep. Act just, just roll over January 1. Mm-hmm. And um, it's sort of the latest um, a bit of, of legislation around this topic. Um, the requirements on a business, uh, are that for those folks who are in California, that the, the consumer can reach out to the business and say, Hey, you know, please, you know, get rid of my data. 
Um, and, and there's not a ton more than that in order to, you know, to measure compliance. But, you know, just one example. I, I think the bigger picture is um, what are we willing to accept as consumers in order to have a great and relevant experience online? Uh, so, you know, rather be, than being served advertising that is completely irrelevant, how much information am I willing to uh, share uh, with an organization uh, in order to improve that experience? And there's a balance there, uh, in my opinion. I don't think it's zero. Uh, I think it's significant. And um, so, you know, as, as e-commerce professionals, we need to put safeguards in place. Uh, we need to make decisions about what we will and will not do with data. We need to work with anonymized uh, data sets. We need to be very careful how we manage consumer data, um, simply in the way we process it within the organization, how we handle these things. Um, not, not overly difficult to do, um, but a decision that has to be made and something you want to stick with because uh, you want to sit down with your legal folks and make sure that you have compliance in place mm -hmm. and you have the oversight you need uh, so that your data are protected. Um, that is, you're having transactions, of course, you're PCI compliant and managing all of those issues. Um, so you know, data privacy, data security are uh, just a part of how we need to be good citizens. Mm -hmm. And um, again, it goes back to our brand promise to consumers that we're going to, you know, we're going to do a great job of, of managing their data, taking care of their data. Um, there are a couple of other things that are happening in the marketplace around this, though. Um, Apple has been uh, chasing ITP yeah, uh, for the last two years now. And uh, this is starting to have a, an interesting effect on, um, I'll say, certainly our business's ability to um, sort of measure consumer behavior. Um, you know, so for, for those of who have been doing e-commerce for a period of time, you understand the notion of building campaigns at a digital level and the UTM parameters that we associate to the activities. So when a consumer does something, we sort of know where they came from and uh, we can track behavior and understand uh, the effectiveness of our campaigns. Uh, and a lot of this then is cookie-based. Mm -hmm. And so uh, ITP, uh, the intelligent tracking protection, uh, is something that um, Apple developed and is connected to their Safari browser. Uh, which is basically deleting cookies uh, every night uh, from consumers' Safari browsers. And this is completely without um, the consent or knowledge of the consumer. Um, and it is done with the intention of trying to uh, limit uh, the amount of data um, that consumers are fundamentally sharing um, mm -hmm. with organizations. Um, I think in principle, it sounds really uh, good um, but I think in practice, uh, it may actually undermine uh, the, uh, it may undermine uh, what we're seeing today as what we refer to as the, the internet. Uh, and so the example that I used in my presentation was the notion of neighborhoods. Uh, and I, and I showed a, you know, a typical upscale neighborhood, and then I showed a typical neighborhood that has, you know, um, suffered tremendously and, you know, which neighborhood do you want to be in? Well, of course you want to be in the super posh neighborhood. Uh, I think if we're not careful, uh, if we get um, too aggressive about how we are managing cookies and working it without permission from the consumer, we can begin to create an idea in the mind of the consumer that the internet is a bad neighborhood, uh, forcing them to retreat to, in this case, what a posh neighborhood would be, which is an application. 
So I don't want to go to Amazon in my browser. I'm going to download the Amazon app. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm in a secure environment and, and I'm comfortable sharing whatever information, et cetera. Um, I think that sounds good. Uh, however, um, I, I, I certainly have concerns in the long term uh, that we um, change consumers' behavior when there fundamentally isn't anything to change to begin with. Uh, you're still going to share as much or more of your information with Amazon through their app because uh, now they're going to know everything about you all the time, wherever you are, because they're in your phone all day long uh, versus you going and using their browser, uh, excuse me, using your browser to access their site. Uh, that's a completely different relationship. So uh, there's balancing going mm-hmm. on right now. And these are maturing and evolving uh, ideas and technologies. Uh, I think what's always been true still is true today. Look, as consumers, be careful, beware. Be sensitive, be smart, uh, and you'll uh, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so prevalent in the news. I, I mean, again, Apple and whether or not they will unlock their phones for you know people that are found of wrongdoing, but then that opens a whole another Pandora's box. So, very fascinating. And how I mean, how all the technology is unfolding with e-commerce, with web, with everything. You know, Facebook and what do you share and what. Well, I think it speaks to, there's just a lot happening, but it's our job as marketers to know this, to be aware of it, be educated on it. I I couldn't agree more because uh, we live in an age today where so much of what we can do now is actually measurable, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's really different than it was in just a few decades ago, um, which makes us much, much more effective uh, with the dollars that we have within an organization to grow and build brand, build relationships, make a difference. Um, and it, you know, it's easy to lose perspective on data security, data privacy. So security is one thing. It needs to be hundred percent or as close mm-hmm. as we can get it. But data privacy, it's a little bit more challenging than that. And, and I'll just use this as an example. I think all of us are comfortable going to the grocery store, filling up our cart with things and checking out and, and being on our way. And in that moment, were you aware that we're dozens, maybe hundreds of strangers who could see what it was that you were buying, what you were wearing. They could hear the things you were saying. They saw your payment method when you checked out. Maybe they even saw the car you were driving and your license plate. <laughs> you know, so the, the idea is... I'm never going to have a, the same shopping experience now. Thanks, John. <laughs> you're welcome. But, but you know, there's, there's a point of, of saying, you know, uh, gosh, I, I really am sharing a lot of information all mm-hmm. the time. Right. It's true. Uh, I didn't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. So, but, but it's true because fundamentally we're social creatures. Right. Uh, so, um, no, you didn't share your driver's license number with me or your tax return. You know, you didn't, you didn't share, you know, your social security number with me or any of those other things, but it's actually, you know, important to remember how much information we actually do share with other people without ever even meaning to do so. Mm-hmm. So uh, data uh, privacy is a, an interesting topic and it's really evolving. Interesting. Hashtag paradigm shift. <laughs> All right, John. Well, before we let you go, we want to ask a few uh, more personal questions just to learn about what makes you makes you tick and and who you are. So who or what inspires you? Gosh, uh, well, um, that's a tough one. Uh, I there's a, a variety of folks um, who I've been privileged to work with um, that have inspired me in a number of different ways. They tend to be pretty visionary folks. Uh, either they see a long way down the road early, um, 
or they just have great practices. Um, and these are some left brain people, some right brain people. I've, I've just been very fortunate uh, to work with folks uh, in a variety of, of businesses um, that have really challenged me uh, to, to think deeply. Um, and I'm, and I'm very grateful for that, you know, so from a business perspective, um, I've, you know, I've just been, there's been a lot of very generous people who have, uh, shared their knowledge with me. And I think it's one of the reasons why I feel compelled to do the same thing on a personal level. Um, I'm, you know, I'm actually a musician. Uh, so for me, um, there are some, uh, some musicians, uh, composers, et cetera, who have been super influential for me, um, for whom I take inspiration and, uh, so, you know, kind of a balance of those things. And um, because I'm old enough to have adult children, um, I'm, I'm actually kind of inspired by my, uh, by my kids. Uh, children, if you don't have them already and they're not necessarily adults, uh, they're uh, very challenging people um, <laughs> because they know you so well. They do. And uh, uh, so if you, if you have adult kids, you know what I'm talking about. And... Um, yeah, they're great because they keep you honest and, uh, you know, they tell you like it is and they don't take a lot of nonsense from you. So, uh, I, you know, I find, uh, I find a lot of inspiration from, from them. And, and then I would just say younger people generally, I'm really inspired by the energy that they bring, uh, how excited they are and, you know, the way that they think and act. So, uh, I get super inspired by young people. Would you like to share any of those, uh, prolific artists that inspire you? Well, uh, yeah, um, I like, there's a couple of, um, I mean, I, I like a lot of music, so it's hard to just nail it down into one, uh, you know, sort of one, but, uh, like there's a, a composer and guitar player who plays a lot of jazz. His name is Pat Metheny and he partnered with a guy named Lyle Mays who's a piano player. Uh, those guys have been very inspirational to me over time, okay. but honestly, I'm, I'm just as comfortable listening to uh, Alan Jackson or, <laughs> you know, sure. uh, whatever, um, yeah, so for me, just good music is good music. Louis Armstrong, Wes Montgomery. I mean, these are some other, you know, great folks who've really inspired me. Okay. Nice. All right, well, second question. Uh, this one's my favorite. Uh, being an avid reader myself, what is your favorite personal development, business, or marketing-related book? Uh, yeah, so for for me, and I, I think I remember, uh, you know, that we talked about this before, and you know, I, I, I hope no one finds this cliche, but um, I found Stephen Covey's work in uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People um, to really, really be helpful uh, for me. Um, you know, I've had a chance to meet and talk with a guy a few times and uh, no less inspiring, just more so, and just having a little bit, you know, deeper conversations with him. Um, but that book, if you can fight your way through it, um, really kind of strips away a lot of the, the stuff that, that I, I guess I needed, uh, in order to just, you know, get some clarity on understanding consumers and brands and how they interact with each other and how they should interact because it all comes back to a relationship. And I think the seven habits book teaches you about super healthy mm -hmm. relationships. At least I think it does. So, um, that's been, a probably one of the biggest ones I think, uh, for me, it's just really helped clarify responsibility and roles. 
Yeah, that's a good one. That's a, one of those that you got to have on your shelf, I think, all the time. That is on my shelf. That is yeah. one of my faves. And it is it is a little tough to get through. I mean, it's some pretty deep, you got you have to do some thinking. Yeah. Did you have a, a, a favorite concept or concepts from the book that kind of stood out? Um, I, I do. I've been very privileged to be able to build teams in a number of different organizations. And um, I follow the four empathic questions uh, that Covey laid out. Um, they're, they're super basic, but I use them over and over and over again in sort of modified forms. And the four questions are, you know, how's it going? Um, what are you learning? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you need and how can I help? Yeah. And, and, you know, again, they just sound like the most basic kinds of questions, but when you're building a team and you have people that you're working with, uh, when these folks understand that, you know, this is an empathetic relationship that you have certainly requiring performance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it really changes the conversation and you build trust very mm-hmm. quickly, uh, which is fundamental, which is key to getting kind of the really high level of performance that we need from our teams. Absolutely. And the last question then, if you could boil what you've learned down in your career to one piece of advice for others, what would that be? Simple question. Very simple, right? <laughs> Super easy. Uh, wow. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think I've, I've said this a little bit already, but, um, for me, it comes down to relationships. Um, uh, business is very challenging and I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, I, I just think it's absolutely critical to show up as a whole person and work super hard, uh, to engage with people and do it in a, like with a strong sense of diversity, um, and inclusiveness. Uh, if you can approach uh, business from that perspective, uh, I think your chances of success are really, really high. And uh, But don't underestimate how challenging it is yeah. to do that. So show up as a whole person <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and really embrace, you know, what you find. Um, because we're pretty, you know, I'll speak for myself. I'm, you know, lots of, lots of broken things, lots of gaps, lots of blind spots. And, and so... Um, I think if we recognize that in ourselves, it makes it a lot easier to deal with others and you can find your way to, uh, really, really cool things together, uh, that you could never do, uh, when you're apart. So sorry, that was a long co- you know, talk about that. No, that's great. Yeah. Thank Love you. It. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, for joining us today. If people want to, you know, get in touch with you, ask any more questions, where can they, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you're welcome to reach out to me there. Um, certainly my, my contact details are there. So it's, Perfect. that's probably the easiest, uh, okay. easiest thing to do. Throw us the, uh, Costa website too, if people mm-hmm. want to get on and surf your, your page. Sure. Uh, you, uh, can go to Costa Del Mar, C-O-S-T-A-D-E-L-M-A-R.com. Uh, or you can go to Costa Sunglasses.com and, uh, um, uh, to come on and, and see what we're talking about, see what we're thinking about, follow us on social. We've got a really big Insta feed and um, Facebook for your older people. Um, hey. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be funny if it wasn't true. So, That's true. I know, I know. Um, yeah, so uh, love to have you guys engage. If you see something there that makes sense, then uh, it'd be great to have you as a part of the tribe. Okay, I thought of one more question since we're oh. talking about Costa. Anything, anything hot, anything new? Trends people should be looking for for the 
for the spring and summer? Well, we, uh, we have some super new uh, products that are coming out. Um, we just launched a couple new um, products in our Delmar collection, which are the beautiful acetate products. We've got three new performance frames that are launching in February, four new metal frames that are coming out in March, and then we have an entire patriotic collection uh, that's going to show up starting in May. And it'll be around, interestingly enough, just in time for both the Olympics and oh. then the 2020 elections for people who might That's be feeling good timing. might be feeling a little patriotic. <laughs> oh boy, so, that's gonna be a fun year, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, <laughs> lots to check of, out that line. Lots of red, white, and blue coming for uh, for the summer. Uh, you know. Is a fantastic country we live in. Mm-hmm. We're really blessed to be here. So uh, Coastal will be celebrating that this That's summer. That's awesome. Very cool. I'm, I'm glad that we asked. Bookmarking it now. Check it out. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Coming up on our next podcast, just a little preview, ROI of the third kind, the exponential power of business and nonprofit partnerships. We're going to chat with Bill McKendry from Haven, who will walk us through how to best create brand and cause advocacy. Yeah. So Bill uh, has been mixing his business and nonprofit organization passion and purpose uh, with and for his clients for over 25 years. Uh, so he's going to talk to us about some tips and examples on how to create a brand and cause advocacy that creates win-win-win situations for both businesses and nonprofits alike. Win, win, win times mm-hmm. times three. Times three. And then on deck, a multimedia marketing. We're going to be speaking with Adam Bird from Bird and Bird Studio about visual marketing through photography. Then we're going to follow that up with multimedia marketing. Uh, we have a panel discussion, and they're going to be talking about some of the more popular channels, including videos, um, our favorite podcasting, uh, mm. photography, blogs, webinars, all that great stuff. So um, that one's going to be recorded live at our luncheon, so you'll get all the great info from the panel there. Yeah, that one's going to be awesome. Also, thank you to our uh, our sponsors, our new podcast sponsor, River City Studios, where we are recording today. They can help you record, produce an awesome podcast just like ours. They offer recording, mixing, mastering for TV, film, radio, podcast, and musicians. You can check them out at rivercitystudios.com. And we also want to give a huge thanks to CQL, who sponsored um, our e-commerce luncheon uh, that John spoke at. So CQL, they craft commerce solutions and digital experiences that help brands transform their business. You can check them out at cqlcorp.com. Um, and we also want to give a shout out to uh, Doug and Sean of CQL, who sat with both Josh and I at the table and uh, shared some of their favorite uh, things about e-commerce. So thank you for that. And of course, our gold sponsors, MI Biz and Bizcom Media, Silver Sponsors, PageWorks, Bird and Bird Studio and Red 66 Marketing, and Bronze Sponsors, OFA, and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning, which makes super tasty food and awesome cookie bars. Yes, Josh is always raving about the food, which, mm-hmm. which we certainly love. Um, thanks again to John, um, the Marketers in Motion podcast. We're so blessed to be able to have great people like John on and to, to learn from them. Uh, we are online at amawestmichigan.org. Um, and while you're there, connect with us on social, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of it. Subscribe, review, and engage with us also on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. If you want a direct line to us, we talked about customer reviews today. We love to hear your feedback, so please send us an email, podcast at amawestmichigan.org. Let us know what you've been listening to, what you love, what you want to hear more of. Uh, We definitely want to engage with you. And of course, if you're a listener who is not in the West Michigan area, uh, make sure you connect with your nearest AMA chapter by visiting AMA national chapter at ama.org. Thanks, Meg. We'll see you at the next podcast. Sounds good. 
We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion.